Our scripture reading today is going to be found in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be continuing in our study this morning in Mark chapter 11. If you'll turn there, Mark chapter 11, and we're going to start um, in verse 12. I'll give you a moment to get there. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach them and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For seeing, seeking, they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. Let's pray. It is no small thing this morning, Father, to gather together, to sing to you, to open up your word, to hear your word. To relate to one another. This is no small thing. God, I pray this morning. That we would just get a vision. And a sense of awe. Concerning the gravity. Of who you are. And that we can have a relationship with you because of your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would see you more clearly this morning than when we walked in. God, we want to pray for those among us, those who belong to this body, who are sick. We're in need of comfort. God, we want to pray that you would be with them. We want to pray for their healing. God, for those who may be struggling 
emotionally this morning, those who may have relationship issues that aren't going well. God, we just want to pray that you would work and that we would see your mighty hand and the power of what you can do. God, we love you. We love you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. My father yesterday uh, celebrated his 75th birthday. And uh, any of you who know anything about my family and my mother's uh, going through Alzheimer's and the struggle that's been for my dad, um, we would have done anything that he wanted us to do on his birthday. And so when we called and said, Dad, what do you want to do? It's up to you. His response was, I want my family to worship together. So last night, Saturday night, they go to a Saturday night service uh, at Silverdale. Uh, we gathered together as a family and sat there together, a large row, a lot of us there, and worshipped with my father. And one of the things you need to know about my father in this interaction is that this was not one of those moments where you kind of go in and, you know, he kind of shows off his family to the rest of the church. I mean, I know he's proud of us, but that's not what this was about, and it was obvious. This was also not one of those moments that we go in and, and, and dad is convincing us about how great his church and his pastor is. That's not what this was about. This was truly, truly about being together as a family and sitting and singing and worshiping. And it was interesting to to look down the row of my family as my nephew was sitting on one side of me, my wife on the other, my dad and uh, nieces and my sister and brother. What was interesting is that as we were there worshiping together, there were many different ways that people were expressing their worship. Some had their eyes closed, some had their hands raised, some were looking around. (laughs) But it was just a neat, neat time to be there together celebrating how great God is on the day that my father was celebrating 75 years of life. And in that moment, one of the things that I couldn't help but think about and thought about even this morning is preparing for this sermon is how my dad kind of pastored the family in that moment. Many of you know my father was a pastor for many years. I guess you're never truly not a pastor. He's retired out of necessity at this point. But he was pastoring our family. And one of the things that, as I was reading this text earlier this week, that that, that caught my attention is the reality that a pastor, leaders, elders within a church, can destroy worship. In my father, I saw the other example, fostering worship, but a pastor, elders and leaders can destroy worship within a church. When there's wrong thinking, wrong focus, wrong motives, it can destroy the very essence of what should be bringing us together of what we should be about as we gather together. 
when we gather, what's the goal? What's the aim? What do we do? Why are we even here? Is it just something that we're supposed to do? Or is there something more for us as we gather together? You see, this morning in our text, we get this dire warning about improper worship. In our text this morning, one of the things that's going to be on display is a people, God's people, Israel. The people that His Son has come to save. And they're getting it all wrong. They're getting it all wrong. Now, there's a temptation when we look at this passage. And most of the time when I have read or heard or been a part where people are going through the book of Mark, normally when we get to this section, there are three sermons. And we've probably all heard them in this way, right? That the first sermon is something about Jesus and cursing the fig tree. Then we have a sermon on the cleansing of the temple. And then we have a sermon on the backside um, of this about prayer and faith. And one of the reasons that pastors do that is because there is a lot here. There's a there's some good stuff in all three sections of this passage. But what I want to do this morning is I want to take this as I think Mark intended it for us to look at it as a whole. And what I hope emerges is this big, great, awe-inspiring, wonderful theme. That I hope that we see what Mark is calling us to, what our Savior Jesus is calling us to in the midst of of this passage. Now, you may say, Lewis, you know, why are you doing this? And as I've said, I think Mark wrote it this way. One of the things that we have in our text, if you've been with us in our study on Mark, is this is another one of those what we call Mark and sandwiches, right? It's this literary device that Mark uses where he talks about something, then there's something in the middle, and then he comes back and talks about something. In our text, if you were listening, there's the fig tree. Then there's the cleansing of the temple. And then what do we come back to? Fig tree. And so this is a clue of whatever is going on in this encounter that we need to be thinking of it collectively as a whole. Another thing that's interesting here, I don't know if you notice this, but in verse 11 where we ended last week, we have Jesus entering Jerusalem and he came into the temple. And then he goes out of the temple. And then in verse 15, look what happens again. He came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple. And then he comes out of the temple. And then in verse 27 of this same chapter, notice again, he came to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple. That what Mark is showing us is that here we have Jesus in this showdown with the religious institution, with the religious leaders of the day, and he's in confrontation with them. And in our passage, this is what we have. We have Jesus in confrontation with this institution, with these religious leaders. And I think it even, we could spell it out to the, the people, God's people, Israel. And one of the things that we might do this morning that I think would be wrong is if we just left it there. 
if we looked at this, and surely this is what's going on. Jesus is going in and he's looking at the temple and he's telling us what is wrong with the temple, what is wrong with their worship. And one of the things that would be wrong is that if we never connected it to us, if we left it back there in the past, if we said, yeah, Lewis, you know, look, yes, Jesus cleansed the temple and this was a foreshadowing of the temple was going to be destroyed in 70 AD and then we just leave it there and end it there. I don't think that's what our Lord and Savior would have for us to do. I think we need to take lessons from this. Although this church, Signal Mountain Bible Church, is not the temple, and we shouldn't read ourselves into that, the reality is that we are God's people gathering here together for a common purpose, and we can gain a lot from understanding what's going on here and the warning. The warning that Jesus has for this temple. Oh yeah. Isn't it interesting when we look at the book of Revelation. That we see John. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As he is told to write. He is indicting churches. He is indicting churches for getting off center. Or doing things wrongly. What about in 1 Peter, when Peter was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he, what does he say? Judgment's going to start where first? In the house of God. So brothers and sisters, as we gather, as we listen, as we hear, and as we perceive this warning that is coming from our Savior, I pray that we would take this to heart as well. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And, and Jesus comes in with all this fanfare, riding on a donkey, with people shouting Hosanna, with them laying uh, leaves in front of him, putting their coats down in front of him, and the people are shouting Hosanna. And remember we talked about how anticlimactic it was when Jesus gets to the temple, that instead of the high priest and instead of the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, welcoming him into the temple... And saying the king is here. Instead of that happening we ended in verse 11 with Jesus at the temple. Just kind of hanging out. Just looking around it says in verse 11. Now. This is true. But there's more to it. One of the things that we see in our text this morning is that as Jesus is there. He's not just looking around. He's observing something. We're going to see in a minute that he's observing this craziness that's going on. This buying and selling, this, this, this the selling of sacrifices, uh, money changers in the temple, converting money, paying alms, a, a lot of activity going on. And when Jesus looks at the activity and looks at the kind of activity, the activity that is going on, he makes this condemnation and he says, this is a den of robbers. So Jesus, in verse 11, I think, sees all this going on. And so when we get to verse 12, we need to have this in the back of our mind. Now, talking about my dad a lot this morning, um, some people who know my dad from when we were growing up know my dad as Mr. Green Toe. 
And they know him as Mr. Green Toe because he would go in and give talks to schools where he would dress up in his suit, a lot like Gary looks this morning, all spiffy. And he would, as a part of this, he would take his jacket off, and his jacket, he would have one of the sleeves of his shirt cut off. And he wouldn't say anything about it, and the kids would laugh, and he would keep going, and at some point, he would end up with his shoes off, and he had a sock with a hole in it, and his toe was green. So some people know him as Mr. Green Toe. What my dad was doing is that my dad was giving this, this message, this message that he was relaying to these kids, and he, he wanted to give them this, this metaphor, this physical metaphor, so that they would remember it. It'd be interesting to see if we had people who remembered Mr. Green Toe, if they remembered the message that went along with the green toe. Now, what I want you to see, and what's vitally important to our message this morning is that prophets in the Old Testament were called to do the same thing. That over and over again in the Old Testament, we have prophets that are called to do some kind of strange things. In, in the book of Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 19. He is asked to go and get these jars. And he takes the religious leaders and the people um, out. And he goes out and one of the things that he does is he smashes the jars. And as he's smashing the jars, this is supposed to be a metaphor, an illustration for them to know that he told them that their worship had become so defiled that God in his judgment is going to smash them like these jars. And an interesting, another interesting example of this is Isaiah. Do you remember what Isaiah was asked to do um, when talking about the Egyptians and the Cush people. Isaiah was asked to walk around naked and barefoot for three years. As an example of the shame and the, the punishment that was coming upon these people. Maybe one of the strangest ones in the Old Testament. Comes from the book of Ezekiel. Where Ezekiel was supposed to lay on his side for like 390 days as an example of, of judgment. But not only that, it got even more strange. And that's, many of you may know this account, where Ezekiel was said that he was supposed, the only thing he could do is eat bread. And do you remember what was the fuel to bake his bread? Cow poop. He was asked to do this as an example of the judgment because the people of God had lost their way. And what I want to propose to you is that Jesus, in coming to Jerusalem, and this account of the fig tree, is Jesus in the line of the prophets, in this same way, is doing something here with this fig tree that's supposed to be communicating to the people something. The same way that the prophets did. And so when Jesus comes to this fig tree, there's something more going on than meets the eye. In fact... I read this passage to the staff earlier this week, and I asked them, hey, what's going on with this tree? So here's what I read. Hear it again. On the deck, next day, they left Bethany, and he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was, notice this, it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And one of the observations that I made early this week as I was reading this text is, what did this tree do? 
It wasn't even in season. Jesus is being harsh here. One of the staff said that she thought that Jesus was hangry. Certainly when we read this, we're like, whoa, man, what is going on? Is this just Jesus in this some kind of weird emotional state? And then because he has superpowers, he can kind of do things that, that, that may be irrational in his anger. I mean, there's one story that when Jesus was little from a apocryphal, a book that we don't believe is true. This story was made up of Jesus was playing with a mate and he got angry with his mate and killed him. Is that what's going on here? I don't think so. Jesus here is standing in this role of a prophet and it begins to make sense to us and we begin to understand it when we begin to entertain things that the original readers of this text would have known like this is that many, many, many times in the Old Testament the nation of Israel is referred to as a fig tree. A vine. A nation. A people who were supposed to bear fruit. In fact, the imagery many times in the Old Testament is that God's people should be the kind of people that are bearing the kind of fruit that other nations look and are jealous and come to this nation wondering, what is it about you that produces such fruit? The idea is that the fruit and the harvest within this Nation within this people should be plenty. And when we're talking about fruit, when we're looking at the Old Testament about fruit, it's a metaphor. It's not physical fruit. It's actually actions. Holiness. Godliness. It's their spiritual condition. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah we see in chapter 8, and it's speaking of God, that God is looking at His people, and He's seeing that their actions are evil. And then in verse 13, we have this statement, that God came to gather the grapes and the figs, but there was no, no fruit on the tree. What a picture here. What a metaphor of Jesus walking into the temple. Jesus walking into the holy city of Jerusalem. Jesus standing in judgment. Jesus as God looking at his people and realizing that there was no fruit on the tree. Now, another thing that is helpful as we're looking at this, is you've got to know just a little bit about horticulture here. And what you need to know is that a fig tree is unlike a lot of other fruit trees. And that is, is that with a fig tree, what happens is that the fruit, the fig, is ripe and ready to eat either before the leaf comes. So sometimes you can have figs and no leaves, but certainly if there's a leaf on the tree, there is supposed to be fruit. And when we understand this, which the original readers would have understood, then we begin to understand and we see, oh, no, Jesus isn't hangry. What we are seeing is that the tree was supposed to have fruit on it. 
because there were leaves, Jesus seeing it from far off, the expectation was there was fruit. And so when Jesus approaches this tree and there's no fruit, it means there's something wrong with the tree. It's diseased. Something's horribly wrong because there is no fruit. Now let's pause. Jesus is walking towards the temple. He's walking into the holy city. And all the structures are there. Here's this magnificent temple that Herod had built. It's Passover. People are flocking into the temple. It's, it's thought that there was possibly between two and three or four hundred thousand people coming to Jerusalem for Passover. As he goes into the temple, that means that there are hundreds of thousands of animals. There's preparation for sacrifices. There's all the appearance that things are right. There's all the appearance that the stage is set for worship. Everything's there. But when Jesus walks in, what does he see? No fruit. No fruit. Now we see Jesus acting out this judgment. We see Jesus in the temple acting out this metaphor. Let's look at 15 through 18. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. The whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When I was young, do you know what the main application, a lot of times when I, would heard this, when I heard this text read, you know what, if, if I was, if you met 16-year-old Lewis and you said, hey, Lewis, what's the application uh, for the text of Jesus in the temple. You know what I would have said? No fundraisers in the church. That our school was always asking us to do fundraisers. And so many people would bring this objection of this is why you didn't do fundraisers in the church. Because his house was supposed to be a house of prayer and not a house of uh, a den for thieves. And that application is wrong. Right? There's something else going on. It's fascinating to me, it's fascinating to me, as we look at the book of Jeremiah, just a minute ago as I quoted to you or alluded to uh, chapter 8 of Jeremiah where it says that God went out to gather the fruit and there was no fruit. What's interesting to me is that Jesus here quotes Jeremiah chapter 7 and I want to read some verses to you. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and you and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? That God is saying, how dare you stand in the doorways and proclaim this is the temple, this is the dwelling place, this is the place you commune with God when you have things going on in your life that are abominations. It's pretty fitting that Jesus calls this a robber's den. Just to get an idea of what was going on is that, you know, during this time it was Passover, people were flooding into Jerusalem, there were going to be sacrifices, this was a day in which they were supposed to come, which they were supposed to, to, to dedicate and, and to seek the God and to remember the time in which he was so merciful to them, that he delivered them, that he spared them. This is supposed to be a wonderful time of celebration. And they were to come and they were to bring sacrifices. And one of the things that was going on in the temple is that maybe there were people that, that didn't have enough. Maybe they didn't have animals. And so the temple said, hey, listen, for a small marginal fee, we will get you one. And it's noted that some of the things that were going on within the temple is that, you know, normally where you would buy a pigeon for like maybe five cents, pigeons were being sold for like five dollars. Oh, yeah. And by the way, do you know who it was that would deem if an animal was clean or unclean or unblemished so that it could be sacrificed? The priest. And so what would happen if you brought your animal into the temple and you brought one, you traveled from a long way and the priest said, oh, no, that animal is blemished. I tell you what, though. You give me a little something, something, I'll get you an unblemished animal. Not only that, but it talks about the, the money tables, the money changers, that what's going on is that currency had to be exchanged. And, you know, the people of the temple, being good business folks, would charge a little bit of extra fee for that change of currency. There's a lot of money being made at Passover. And I also think probably one of the things that was happening is that if the people had gotten used to this kind of practice, that maybe instead of bringing their unblemished animal 
from afar, you know, like making a journey with an unblemished animal or, you know, carrying it in there on a however they carried those animals in that day and age that maybe they were like, ah, you know what? It's just easier to buy one from the priest. Some devotion. Some sacrifice. I believe that probably this sort of thing had just become routine. That even the the idea of Passover itself had become so just routine and this is just what we do that, yeah, yeah. This is what goes on at the temple. No big deal. I, I don't know what to kind of compare it to. Maybe going in on coming here on Easter Sunday and there's a larger crowd than normal because it's Easter Sunday. And so what we do is take up special offerings for the pastoral car fund. I mean, how abhorrent would that be? Or maybe one time I attended a church on Easter Sunday and people were gathered into this beautiful, majestic building on Easter Sunday. And do you know that the message had, there was no mention of Jesus. No mention of, 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 of our sin. No mention of the gospel. No mention that Christ had come and died. No mention that God had raised his son from the grave. No mention that we could now have our sins forgiven in a relationship with God on Easter. They had lost their way. There was not a sense of awe about who God was in the temple. There was not a dependence upon God in the temple. There was not a, 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 at this gut level, this just need for God. God, you have made a way in the past. Will you continue to make a way? There was no fruit. There was no acknowledgement of God's mercy, of his love, of his might. There was no worship. And in some ways, and I think this is an indictment of a lot of churches and hopefully not us as well, is that pragmatism had replaced worship. And this is what can kill a church. It can kill worship. As you're thinking about this, your mind may drift. And one of the things that you may get occupied with is them. You know who the, I don't know the correct way to say this grammatically, so forgive me. Do you know, what, you know who the them are in this statement that I just made? Am I close, Nick? A lot of times when we think about them, maybe we're thinking about the prosperity gospel preachers. Who are preaching that if you're, you know, if you if your life is right, then God wants to bless you financially and with health. And and so one of the ways that you do that is that if you give something to the church, then God's going to bless you financially in return. And so a lot of times we may look at this, hear a message like this and say, yeah, 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 those folks. Those folks. But what about us? 
Can we lose our focus? Can what we're doing this morning just become ritual? Can our service be filled with just practical and there be no longing, no expectation, no dependence, no awe, no wonder? Isn't it fascinating that in verse 17, as he's quoting Isaiah 56, he's saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And if you were to read Isaiah 56, there's these two things that are going on, and it, man, it's tempting to just hover here, but it's not just prayer, it's joyful prayer. He talks about joyful prayer. And, and even in that chapter, Isaiah is saying that the Gentile is coming into the house of God and Joyful prayer. And I think where we can miss this text, where we miss what's going on, is if the application is simply, you just need to pray more. Because what I want to say, what I think is going on in this text, is that a people who are seeing God for who He is, the natural result is praying. The natural posture is prayer. So this isn't a text like, hey, pray more. This text, Jesus is looking and saying, this is descriptive of things are going poorly in and among you because you're not a people of prayer. You don't know my Father. If you knew who He was, you would be a people of prayer. These next section of verses, there's a lot here. And even just reading this next section of verses, one of the things that, that happens is that you have a lot of questions. I'm, and we, man, you could preach several sermons from this, but, but I want you to see how this is connected. Just on its face, it's connected because it's the it's the other side of the bun of the sandwich or the other piece of bread of the sandwich. Fig, temple, fig. But it's also connected because in verse 17 that we just read, he's talking about prayer. And here we have at this point, Jesus picks up again and he talks about prayer. But I want you to see something. In verse 20, they were passing by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered from its roots up. And I think what is going on, I think what we're supposed to see is that we're supposed to compare. And we're supposed to ask ourselves here as they are walking and, and they see the fig tree and Peter says, oh, look, Jesus, the fig tree that you cursed. And it's completely useless. It's withered from the root up. And I think what we see in this part of this text is this comparison of this is this is what my this is what my non people look like dead no fruit withered judgment and that we're supposed to compare that with here here is what people my people look like so in my house my people verse 22 have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you that whoever says to this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask and believe that you have received from them, they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you of your transgressions. Notice, notice that Jesus is saying, my people are powerful because they have faith. This whole idea about moving mountains is this, is this saying. It's this catchphrase. And one of the things that we know that any time in the Old Testament that moving mountains is being discussed, who is it that is moving mountains? God. You can stand at the bottom of Signal Mountain all you would like and say, move, move, move. And unless God wants to move the mountain, the mountain is not going to be moved. This is to take us, and its readers would have known, this is drawing us into the reality of the power of God. My people in my community who are truly following me see the awesome power of God and it draws us in to be a people who pray. Who pray for the will of God to be done. A people who are filled with awe about how good and great and powerful this God is. A people who are expecting God to work in and among them. Because He can do anything. A people who are dependent upon Him. A people who display mercy towards one another because they know how much mercy has been shown them. Dad was a good pastor last night. Pastoring his family. Bringing them in to worship together. A pastor that kills worship is a pastor who is consumed with numbers of people attending the Sunday morning worship. A pastor who is consumed with things like, how much money do we have? Buildings, budget. A pastor who kills worship is a pastor whose main focus on Sunday morning is to look trendy enough. That everything about the, what's going on is, is a show and that it's that show or it's that thing that is inviting you in versus that we are gathered here to worship God. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about the people singing. It's about God. A pastor who kills worship is a pastor whose goal is for his hearers to get maybe some kind of therapeutic advice out of the sermon and be able to walk out of here better people. I want you to walk out of here better people, but I want you to walk out of here better people because you've had an encounter with God. So how will you be seen? How will we be seen? 
And this goes beyond just Sunday morning. This goes to the men's ministry team, the women's ministry team, to growth groups, to Sunday school classes, to staff meetings. Will our focus at Signal Mountain Bible Church be on the God that we serve? The God that has bought us. The God who has loved us. The God who created. The God who sustains. The God who creates. Will we become a place of prayer because we know who it is that we're worshiping? Will we be a people that when visitors come in and meet with us, that the response afterwards wouldn't necessarily be like, man, that was the greatest preaching, or that was the greatest music, or that was the greatest Bible study. But that what is defining us would be that we are a people who are meeting with God. That He is the center of what we do. He is the center of the way we relate to one another. He is the center of why we sing. He is the center of why we preach. He's the center of why we raise families. He's the center of everything about us. When people encounter us, will they understand that we are a people that believe in a big God who is worthy of our worship? Start and ends. Our worship start and ends with who is at the center. And my prayer, and I want you to join with me in this prayer, that we will be a people. We will be a people that worship God, who desire His will, who are dependent upon His power, and that we are a people who are expecting Him to work in and among us, because this is what He promises us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to worship you. You're the only reason why we are here. God, I pray that we continue to become a people to whom the world looks at and it says it makes no sense why you all get together except you must really believe. You must really believe. God, help us to take the warning that you've given us in this passage. Help us not to become like a tree with no fruit. Help us to be individuals. Help us to be a people that are ripe with fruit. It's given to us by you through our worship. God, we thank you. And all this is only possible through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You'll stand.